0: Stacey, I talked to you this week. Any on the songs? No. Carla, I talked to you any? Anybody else? on uh, Ed? Mary no? I didn't talk to anybody. All right. Here's why I had to start laughing the minute that last song was sung. I have this whole first page right here as an intro. And uh, I had it separate because I didn't know if I was going to use it. And uh, you'll, you'll get a kick at it and understand why I'm laughing right now. Here, here's my, my intro story. Uh, and this actually came from weeks ago. I was looking up stuff on how people handle crisis um in their lives. Uh I have some friends and family going through stuff, we as a world are going through stuff, uh we as a as a church have gone through stuff. So so just crisis was on my mind. Anyway, uh here's one of the stories that just stuck with me that I, that I kept uh in looking over this last couple of weeks. So Horatio Spafford, a successful Chicago lawyer, probably one of the most wealthiest people there was in 1873. Uh that's who the story is about. His wife and his four daughters, uh, he sends them on a trip to France. Uh, on their way, um, their ship sinks. Uh, there's 225 passengers on board. Only 87 survive. He lost his four daughters and his wife survives. She makes it to to the shore uh, along with the other 86 survivors without their four daughters. And she just sends this telegraph. Remember, they're sitting in an era of phone. And so it has to be short and, and to the point. She sends, saved alone, children lost, what shall I do? Spafford leaves France immediately to join his wife, to return uh, to her in uh, Chicago. Uh, In the depth of this bereavement, here's the only hymn this man ever wrote. You may have heard it. It is well with my soul. While he's on his trip, he crosses over the area where his four girls most likely have bodies under the sea. Then here's what he writes. And I think knowing the story now will relate much more. Maybe if we're fancy enough, we can put it on the screen. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billow roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. I feel like God's just showing off this morning, to be honest with you guys. Crystal sent me some videos. I didn't make it to the boys practice yesterday. And and as the practice progressed, uh, Reese got into his old self, maybe a little shake and bake and and showing off, even though he's in a traveling league now. And I said, oh, he's just showing off now. And and I just wonder sometimes, you know, in good sense, not in a rude way to God. But I wonder sometimes if God says, I'm just going to show off a little bit so you know who's in control. You know, it might have been a rough morning. It might have been a crazy week. Things might have didn't go your whole way the way you had planned them and the way you wanted them. And you might have gotten to a chapter in Samuel that you didn't know if what you was preaching was right. But God's going to tell you, this is my chapter. This is my story. This is my book. And they are my people. And you ain't nothing but a megaphone to shout out whatever I tell you to shout out. OK, so God has let me know for sure he is in complete control of this service. I about shoved everybody off stage when they started singing it as well with my soul. and come. I mean, I'm in the middle of prayer. And the Lord just let me hear those words. And I had to open my eyes and look up, look on the screen. Is that really, you know, it it was that kind of that kind of thing. And in the midst of crisis, this guy is able to rise above the power of his pain. Probably the greatest pain I can personally ever imagine losing all four of his little children and go through a crisis and handle it the right way. And write words like, God, it is well with my soul, but it is only well with my soul because you were in charge and I'm not. Guys, we, no matter what goes on outside these walls or in our lives, have to be bold enough in our faith, humble enough in our faith to say it is well with my soul because God is in charge and he is in charge. And this morning, as we look at this chapter, uh, Crystal's titled it Crisis in the Home, and I think it sounds much better. I wanted to call it Crisis in the Living Room because uh, to me, uh, David is right in his living room when this goes on. And I'm so glad some of you I know uh, have read this week. Uh, we will kind of use a little bit at the end of this chapter, into into chapter 16. So don't think I'm gonna leave a lot out. But unfortunately, some of the stuff's got to get left out because there's a lot of stuff, and that means you got to do some studying, you got to do some reading. I mean, just think, guys. We got a living room invasion. We got a son who wants to kill his dad. We got the first corrupt politician actually recorded uh, on how smooth and swindling he can be. Uh, we got spies. Um, we, we've got we've got friends. We've got loyalty. We, we've just got a lot of stuff going on in this chapter, and why? You know, I can't tell you. There's a there's a whole lot of depth to the hidden messages. I was reminded yesterday on a, on a long conversation with my cousin. You know that that we were talking about some things, and and the Lord just led me to say some things, and and I said them, I and why I'm saying them. I don't know if y'all have ever been like this, but why I'm saying them? Like, I'm talking to a dude who's super strong spiritually, and I'm like saying the most basic stupid thing like when I finish she's gonna be like man what you think Are we back in youth ministry again like I don't need you to give me the A, B, and c's of it and he tells me this but that's right on time that's exactly what I needed to be reminded of and I'm like that's that's perfect because this morning isn't I can't tell you it's rocket science what we got in front of us but it's stuff we need to be reminded of and the very first thing we look at this guy's name let's jump into this thing so if you got your Bible, you shirt to be open since head read from it Chapter 15. Just the first lesson I got this week was funny to me. Absalom. Does anybody know what his name means? Even if if you hadn't looked it up, you ought to be able to at least take two of the words that everybody, I think, knows and figure it out. You got Abba, which is. And you got Shalom, which is. So what's it mean? Father of peace. See See how easy this is? Does this guy sound like a guy who's the father of peace? So so here's your highlighted lesson. Write it down because it's real deep. It's real good. Just because you call something something, don't make it something. Did you get it? It's good, right? It's real good. Just because you call something something, don't make it something. Huh? I didn't think I'd get all them somethings out, but I did it. Right? We need to be reminded, guy, because I think sometimes we think like we can we can just call something something, and that's going to make it so, and that's not true. Just calling something something doesn't make it something. Just as this, this, this this motivational mindset that the world has got us in that, you know, sometimes you can just speak it into existence. And, and I'm all about speaking it. And I think what you speak sometimes can bring forth life. But sometimes you gotta do more than just speak it. You gotta believe it. You gotta live it. You gotta change it. You gotta make it happen sometimes. So just calling something something doesn't make something something. Okay? So there's your highlighted first lesson. See how easy first lesson was? right. So Joban is like, how do we know this isn't something? Well, let's review where we've been. Absalom is the product of a failed, ignorant, and stubborn parenthood. That's exactly David is a great leader. He's known as a man after God's own heart. He's a crappy dad. He is. Okay? So let's just get that out there. His his number one son, Amnon, violates his sister Tamar. David gets furious, does nothing. That's chapter 13 where we were. Absalom hated this. So therefore, he goes forth and kills his brother, makes his plan of revenge. To honor his sister, uh, he flees to Geshur for three years. David is, is consumed with the absence and he hates it. Uh, that's the end of 13 going into 14. And, and he, he gets his son back. But here's the problem when he gets his son back. David did not learn anything from his past mistakes. Church, if we're going to be good followers of Christ, we're supposed to learn and recover from our past mistakes, not allow them to continue to happen. All right. Getting over them is great. And when you get over them and don't repeat them, that, I mean, that's what God is looking for. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people that can get over the past and, and start marching in and forth to a new life without going back and walking that same path again. David doesn't do that. This this father and son both repeat the same thing. They recycle, they revive the same mistakes. Absalom, even I would say, gets more conniving, more cruel and more cunning at everything he does. Uh, so you got three years into this into that exile. You got two years of seclusion, isolation, In Jerusalem, and none of that changes Absalom. Why? Because David failed to confront, he failed to correct, he failed to chastise, and he also failed to comfort his son. And guys, if we want to recover from stuff, there's some of the things that have to take place in the lives of those, whether it be our children, or whether it be loved ones, or whether it just be real good friends that that we need to cover in in, in love and peace and grace and mercy, but also sometimes in some toughness to get them over stuff. So we get to this chapter, and another four years goes by. Absalom's free to wonder about and wreak havoc no matter what he wants to do. And David realizes this child of mine has become my worst nightmare. You have a child who now wants to over, not only overthrow his, his father's throne, but wants to kill his dad, wants to send his dad into early retirement, permanent exile. Absalom is a guy who's got the best and the worst of David's genes. Think about this. We know that David must have been a good-looking guy because he had his way with a lot of women, right? whether we want to admit that or not. Absalom no different. We talked about last week, how good looking of a guy he was, how perfect he was from the head of, his, of the top of his head to the sole of his feet uh, and all that going on. He had to cut his hair because it grew so long and so heavy. This guy's got the best and the worst of David's genes. And now we're going to see what this politician who shakes hands, who gives hugs, who kisses the babies on the forehead, who promises all these changes. Notice, notice his wording here, too. is something to be careful of if we're going into election season, right? Not to get off on too much of a a tangent, but be careful of a man's wording versus his actual motives. Look at what he says. He never says anything negative about David, does he? He almost makes it sound like my dad's so busy, which there in itself might be a lesson. So if you're in leadership, if you're so busy, start delegating. Don't let stuff pile up where it can't get done. Get it done. Sometimes you got to get it done with the use of your team. You know, so so get you a good team and and get, get it going. If you, if you never delegate, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to fail. Even if you're trying to take it on, and don't intend to fail. So there, there's self's a free lesson for you, right? But, but look at his wording. He never talks bad about David. He, he appeases all the older crowd because he gets up early, right? A, 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 ask people today, what's the problem with young people? They won't sleep in until 12 o'clock, right? And that's a problem. That's ridiculous, right? Get your butt up when the sun comes up and, and get something done for the day and stop wasting, right? He gets up early. He sits right where people are at need. He speaks to them. He's even smart enough to say, no, 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 don't bow to me. Stand up. We're equals. And in his brain, he's thinking we're equals right now, but it won't be long before you will bow to me no matter what. Ulterior motives. Be careful what people say versus what the actual motive to mean. Okay? his public yearning to be judged, as he says in verse four. What's he really looking for to be king? It happens just a couple verses later. Right now, my question is, if Absalom had been such a great guy and if we want to learn something from him, why would not he be there to help? Why was nobody in this city strong enough to say, hold on, you're saying he has nobody to judge, but you were his son. Why don't you take on some of this burden and help? No, because we're looking for that hero in the wrong way sometime. And when you're looking for the hero in the wrong way, you're going to find the wrong hero. And that's where this crowd gets into. And that's the trouble to get into. And it all starts with verse one. Look at the wording of verse one chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, if you got chariots and horses and 50 men to run before you, are you really looking for speed? No, you showboating. You showboating. This is not about speed. This is not about actuality. This is not about how well performance could be. This is just to impress the crowd that sees you coming. Oh, look at it. You. you can't miss it. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like these, these dumb kids out there with their little squatted trucks and they're clapping exhaust. You can't miss them. You might not like what they got, but you can't miss what they got because it's loud. It's annoying. And and when you do exhaust like that, it actually slows your car down. So uh, keep that in mind, you young folks. Right. So they're not really doing anything for production here. They're doing it for show. They're doing it for show. But but what is what does it go on? And and how foolish is this crowd? These people see exactly what they want to see rather than what they should see. They get fooled by an image. People don't be fooled by an image. Girls, guys, in the dating game, pay attention. Don't be fooled by an image. Find out what's behind the image before you get in there, okay? Sometimes you'll be surprised that the image ain't nothing like what you thought it would be. Sometimes you'll be real surprised that who you thought was going to be your your knight in shining armor or your or your princess uh, bride is going to turn out to be a witch or, or turn out to be you know some jerk that uh, can't do anything right, okay? So so keep that in mind. Don't be fooled by an image. Last week we said this, we have a man who wants to reap the benefits of being an heir without actually being face-to-face with the king. And and this is just repeating that and showing that. If he's got all these chariots, all these horses, he's got the recognition of being daddy's boy. But yet he still hadn't been face-to-face with his daddy lately. He still hadn't been who he's supposed to be. He's good-looking like Thor. We looked at some other pictures last week. And then that gets us to verse 6. Verse 6 says this, so Absalom stole the hearts of all of Israel. What did he do? What did he actually do to steal these hearts? Nothing. Some false promises that don't turn out to work. and some sweet talking. Kissing hands, kissing foreheads, giving a hug, giving a handshake. He's Joe Biden. I couldn't resist that. I'm really sorry. I apologize. That was just that's not in my notes. So that was spirit led. I think <laughs> he steals everything, guys. Check, check out this guy. I go back to the story for real. He steals everything from this man, everything from his daddy. But when we we got the whole story that, that had just read, right, he stole his wives. He's stealing his palace. He's stealing his city. He's stealing his counselor. He's stealing his supporters. He's stealing his own people from him. Tell me this don't sound like he's just repeating his daddy's sin. What did daddy do? Well, daddy stole a man's wife. Daddy stole a man's life and daddy stole a man's future. He's doing the exact same thing. Right. We we said it, I think, two weeks ago, the sin sown by the father is harvested in the son. That's exactly what we're seeing played out. And if there's not enough irony right there in itself for it, this is all taking place. This this thing on the rooftop is taking place on the same rooftop that David hatched out his plan to go sleep with Bathsheba. Is this not the biggest gut punch ever for David? His own son is now sitting on top of his rooftop palace with his 10 concubines which also gives us another sign of David's sin. He shouldn't have had 10 girlfriends at home anyway, right? Plus all the wives that he took with him. But, but this is all taking place on the same rooftop he began his fall. And here's the warning, guys, for us, and should have been a warning for ancient Israel. They're too easily impressed by image and too slow to appreciate the reality of what's behind an image or too slow to see and fear the reality of what's behind an image. And tell me we're not any different today. Are we not so impressed with image over reality that we let image take place, that we let image take control, that we let the idea take control? We use phrases like, oh, but the grass is greener over there. Yeah, but somebody probably did a lot of work to make it greener or it's fake or it's got a whole bunch of manure on top of it. So which way you want it to be when you're talking about the greener grass over there? Okay, there's your options. Look back at seven and eight. Here's one that probably crushed a lot of our little toes. Seven and eight. Look at what he says. Let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to Yahweh. Huh? Huh? Do you see what he's doing here? He's committing treason under the disguise of worship. Now we read it now that our eyes are open to it. We're like, oh man, that is bad. How many of us do the same thing? How many of us try to look spiritual under the disguise of worship. Waving hands, clapping every now and then, moving or just being present, thinking that's it. The appearance of spirituality isn't going to be what God is looking for. Yet it's exactly what the people are looking for. And hear me right now. We need to understand this now. Div- divisive people, people who are there to divide, almost always never see themselves as divisive. Think about that. You ever seen a divisive person admit, well, I'm here to divide? No. They never see themselves as divisive. They see themselves as crusaders for God's righteousness a lot of time, for God's causes a lot of time. What is it that makes man get so stumbled up in in false reality that we think sometimes our hearts are pure enough to impress and change what God wants to do and the way God wants to do it? Nothing in scripture would tell Absalom this is the way that God wants it done. Yet he now thinks what? That he is a crusader for the Lord. He's deceived himself into thinking this. I wonder sometimes if at this point in Absalom's life, has his mind been held captive? You know, Paul writes one of his letters to to the early churches and he tells them, beware so that your minds don't become held captive by the enemy. What he's saying is if you give the enemy enough room, he'll, he'll take your mind and he'll hold it captive. And then you won't even be able to control the things that happen after that. Maybe Absalom is so far deep in and maybe some of us and some of the people we know and love, unfortunately, have gotten so deep in with the enemy that our minds are now being held captive and we can't even control what it is that we thought we could control originally. Now, it doesn't mean you'd be any less responsible for what happens. But how sad of a position that would be in. How sad that is for people that are watching you. We deceive ourselves into thinking that what we believe is right at all costs. Do we not? We take it even further by trying to make it sound religious and what God wants. Do we not? Church, before we use what we think is right in our own mindset and before we dare use the name of God, how about let's investigate it with scripture and make sure it lines up with what God actually says is his idea of righteous. Look at verse 11. That one didn't step on your toe because you weren't involved. This one will. Verse 11. With Absalom went 200 men that were invited from Jerusalem. The verse even goes on to say these guys were innocent. What the verse is saying is these guys had no idea what's actually going on. And what's going on is this. Absalom wisely knew that in order for him to be endorsed by the crowd and the people, he's going to need uh, some of the government to look like it's supporting him. He needs some of those big names and big groups behind him. So he counts out these 200 men. And these 200 men, note this now, they do not go against David. They're just silent. Therefore, they're given the impression that they're for Absalom. Well, let's tie that back to today. Do we realize that when we are silent, we give the impression that we are with the other side? That's exactly what's going on, guys. And this is huge. When the innocent and the unknowing are among the divisive, their silence is always a sign of agreement. Always. You don't get an option to be quiet. You don't get that because when you're quiet, even then you're also speaking volumes to people that are watching. Is it fair? No. Is it right? Probably not. But it's reality. Right. And here. Now, let's jump into the rest. Again, you got to do some studying because I'm going to go through the the, the lessons I think hit home for us today. And here's the first one. You can go down to verse 13. How to deal with a crisis. So if you're taking notes, this is it. You got a crisis at home. You got a crisis in your living room. You got a crisis at work. You got a crisis in the church. Here it is. Number one. Number one's big. I think we need to be reminded of it though. Understand that the most painful crisis you go through will be of a personal nature. Now that seems pretty obvious, right? I think we need to understand that. Those that you are closest to will hurt you the most. Those places that you are most comfortable is where you'll get hurt the most. We need to understand it because we need to be aware of that. Because when we're not aware of that, we we let sometimes the enemy get us confused on things. So picture this scene. This biblical scene right here. You got David sitting in his living room. Maybe he's at the desk doing a lot of work. Maybe his feet are popped up finally. Maybe it's like our living room where there's a bunch of stuff just everywhere and you really don't know what to do. But he's in his living room and this messenger comes running in and she says verse, or he says verse 13. Then an informer came to David and reported the hearts of the men of Israel. are with Absalom. This servant is running in and saying, all your people are against you. And if that's not enough, they're with your son. The worst part is this rebellion that's turned against you. All of Israel is led by your own son, who we're finding out now actually has a goal of killing you and taking over the kingdom. Verse 14, David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem, get up. We've got to flee, for we will not escape out. leave quickly or he will overtake us quickly. Keep disaster on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. His own son he's coming to reality with is what wants to take over his life in his moment. And at this heartbreaking moment, David realizes those things most personal to me are what hurt the most. Now, 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 here's where I want you to pause for just a second. There's even a little lesson in this for us. Now, I didn't get this lesson until this week on a whole separate issue. I read this, and I, and I like to put myself in a story. I, I want to know how David's feeling. It just helps me understand. I could never understand, I hope. I could, I could never understand. Keep twiddling with your paper. It's all right. <laughs> I would never be able to understand what David's going through. I can imagine it. Your own son attacking you, wanting to take over, you know, sleeping with your other girlfriend. Which we ain't and have another girlfriend, so there's one thing we won't have to worry about. But, but you got all that going on. And we could say, oh, I, I can relate. You cannot relate with David. And if one thing I've learned during everything that goes on outside these walls, unfortunately, is this. I can't relate to a lot of what people feel because I can't tell people what they should feel. I, I can't. How can I tell you what you should feel in a situation I've never been in? I can tell you my opinions on it. I can tell you how I think your reactions are. But it's still just then my opinion versus your opinion. It's no different than if we're trying to talk to a lost person. You can show a lost person scripture to the end of time. To me, a lost person, if you're sitting in here right now, you should have been amazed at the beginning of the service that God took an illustration I didn't plan to use and made a song appear right there with it that was word for word. To me, boom. Lights going off. There is a God. There's no doubt about it. He's got big plans for his people in his kingdom. But for you, maybe that's not it. And there's no way I can tell you that these things in scripture should be the thing that does it for you. Are they the thing that does it for me? Yeah, that's why I can relate to them. But I can't tell you how you should feel and how you should respond to things. And neither should we be able to do that to anybody else. But I can ask in a moment like this that we understand David's in pain. He's in pain, man. Right. That his son is not only confronting him; his son is really confronting the plan of God. God's plan, right here, is, is what's being thing, right? His place of rest and peace. Any man look forward to getting home from work and being in his living room. Yeah, I mean, there's just something about you get home from work, you get off the nasty clothes, take a shower, and just sit on your couch. Some of you, some of you are thinking right now that that you would like to you would like to be at your couch right now. Some of you on the internet are thinking, "Thank God I'm on my couch right now." Right. That's your place of peace and rest until you have children. And then they take over that area, too. Right. His child, in a sinful way, is taking over his area of peace and rest, guys. His area and life crisis is going to attack where you are most comfortable. Personally, you might be just chugging along. Crisis is not a respecter of persons and it's not fair about when it comes and how it comes about. And the most personal ones are what hurt the most. Those things that involve your family. Those things that assault your character. Those things that are that are personally somebody else seeking to inflict pain on you. And I get to this part of the story, and here's why I had to change everything I had planned. Because I get to this part of the story, and my whole thing has been, where in the world is this David that took on Goliath? Where in the world is this David that won so many battles, and in reality probably did so much evil as a mercenary, that we don't get recorded sometime in scripture because we just have to assume what he must have been doing as a mercenary and a soldier, right? Where's that guy? Because I got that macho man mentality sometime and I'm like, that's what I, I want that David to come on in and take over some stuff, right? But this David doesn't do it. And I read this chapter and I read this chapter and I read this chapter and I'm like, God, what do you want me to preach? When a man after God's own heart becomes a loser after God's own heart? I mean, well, what? What do you want me to say? But then I realized, see, see, God's not concerned with just one chapter. He's concerned with the whole book. And there's where I was messing up because I was stopping at, at the end of the chapter. And, and I forgot, even though I knew the end, I forgot that God's more concerned about the end than he is the middle in the beginning. It's like, well, hold on. You need to see some of the lessons. So here, here's some lessons after you understand. I think the first one you do have to understand that personal nature it can hurt the most. What is David really doing in this chapter? Number two, no man likes this and not many women do either. Sometimes we got to regroup before we react. Sometimes we got y'all hot because I'm hot. I think stripping in church is not good. So I'm going to do the AC instead of the stripping thing, right? (laughs) Sometimes, (laughs) sometimes you need to regroup before you react. Look at 15 through 17. Jump back in, jump back in. Come on now. The king's servant said to the king, whatever my lord, the king decides, we are your servants. So it's all on David now. David, what are we going to do? The king set out. His entire household followed him, but he left behind 10 concubines, which we'll come back to in a minute, to take care of the palace. So the king set out and all the people followed him. They stopped at the last house. Look look at what's going on right here, man. Sometimes we got to regroup before we react. David's got two options. He can fight or flight. We call it the fight or flight mentality. That's where he's at. Now, I think David is a fighting guy still. It's just his nature. He knew moments he needed to stay away from battle because he wouldn't be able to control himself, which we talked about in 1 Samuel. And and he also knew that he could take care of business when he needed to. You you can't suppress so much of a fighting attitude in a guy, okay? No matter how saved he gets, that that old attitude will still come out at moments. And he's, he's, he's hit with this option right here. If he stands and he fights, he forces Absalom then to likely fight back. And what does he say? He says, Right now, the numbers are against us. Right now, no matter what we do, he will defeat us. And not only will we pay the price, but Jerusalem's going to pay the price for protecting me as king. That's the attitude of a king, guys, which we'll get to, the attitude of a man after God's own heart, we're we'll going to get to in a minute. He's more worried about the city than he is himself, right? He flees the regroups, and he says, If I do this, then time and strength will be on our side, the situation may change. Sometimes we need to understand that time can change the situation for the positive. Okay. Now look at three lessons right here that it does. This is what I'm in about the city. He, pervert, he He preserves the sanctity of Jerusalem. What does he say? If, if we fall right now, then And what is Jerusalem? The nation of God he says we got to preserve the nation of God. Second one. He, he provides for his family. Says that he grabbed a family and the family of the 600 men. This is why he can't fight. Cause the crowd he's taking with him ain't a bunch of fighters. He's taking family with him, right? He's taking wives and the children with him. He's not taking his best soldiers at this moment. He's got some coming with him, those 600 men. But it's their families that are making up these large numbers that are, that are going with him. So, again, he's putting others ahead of himself. What else does he do? He protects what military strength he does have. I believe these 600 men would have turned around and fought with David to the very end, and they would have all died. But yet David knew it wasn't worth that. So he preserves what he has. He regroups so that he can have future action take place. Men, hear me, and some of you women too. There's going to be times in your life where you need to stop and regroup and put some pieces back together before you roll up your sleeves, clench your fist, and think it's time to brawl, okay? Now, that's a tough one sometimes because we we just we want to do that, and we let, we let that, that emotion get us, right? Sometimes the old-fashioned brawl is not the right answer. There are times you need to stop, regroup, and when you do, here's what you're allowed to do. Here's what happened for David and the guys. They get a clear understanding of the big picture. He sent some spies in. He was able to get a clear understanding of what exactly is going on, what exactly is happening, right? He gets focused on the real problem at hand. I can tell you right now but what David's going to do here in a couple more steps is he understands it was my sin that is allowing this and causing this to happen. He gets a clear understanding. His son necessarily is the problem, but he's not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem is, is the sin that was never dealt with. It's the enemy that, that, that is attacked, right? And you also get the opportunity to recover some strength. some build up and get ready and make a plan, right? There are times when quick responses aren't the best. David teaches us that. Number three, we got to reduce the risk of injury to others. Seems simple, right? But do we actually follow through with it? Well, some of the others that we've allowed to get hurt, gotten hurt, and some of the crisis that we've dealt with. You come home from a bad day at work, you explode. Who gets brought into it? Your wife and children. Do they deserve to be brought into it? Nope. Now they're just a casualty of war, casualty of crisis, right? Look look at what happens here, 19 through 20. David's speaking to one of the leaders of his military, and he says, The king said to this guy of Gath, why are you going with us? Go back. Stay with the new king since you're both a foreigner and an exile from your homeland. What does foreigner really mean for a king, by the way? enemy right and he kind of saying look man you're not even really one of us you don't have to be in here really like at one point we were against you guys which goes back to first samuel which we'll talk about just saying right but he's saying he's so guys basically now brought his enemies on board to be his friend and supporter this foreign exile from your homeland besides you only arrived yesterday why should it make you wander around with us and i don't even know where we're going or what we're going to do this kind of sounds like jesus talking to his disciples right I don't even know where I'm going to lay my head or if I'm going to have a place to rest. Right? Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. Stop right there. This this guy who's with him is not Jewish. He's a foreign mercenary that that, uh, David had met back in 1 Samuel chapter 30 in his wilderness experience in Ziglag. And and these men have become like an honor guard to David. And, And as this honor guard, what David is saying is, you guys don't have to leave with me. David's really coming to terms with this, the agreement we made that if you come back and be my honor guard and protect me, I'm the king, so I'll make sure nothing happens to you. David's flat out saying, you know what? I can't keep my end of the bargain anymore. I don't know what lands I'm going to be in. I don't know what area I'm going to be in. I don't know if I'll be able to keep my side of this deal up with you. So so you guys are free. You guys are free to go back, support this king, and, and do what needs to be done because I know I can no longer meet the deal we made. And David's basically saying this, this is no situation for innocent people. You guys are innocent. This. You just got here. This isn't your problem. Stay away. And what we need to learn from David sometime in our family crisis is that we need to do our best to keep the innocent away from our crisis and to keep them safe. Parents especially, the the application is this. Every crisis in your life and in your home doesn't have to be a family crisis in the living room. There are some crises that need to stay in the office there's some crisis that need to stay in the master bedroom and there's some crisis that need to stay in the garage. Maybe some of them even need to stay in the yard. OK, and when we start letting all those crises come on in to the living room, what we've done is hurt and destroy innocent people. We've allowed something to blow up in a room it was never supposed to blow up in. And now the innocent bystanders, a.k.a. our children most of the time, are being injured because of it. And nowadays with technology, we're quick to spread word on that. So now we've also thrown out a scatter bomb all over the rest of our families. And all over our our mutual friends, because now our mutual friends have to decide what side they're going to be on, who they're going to support. They want to know all the details. We've involved way too many people that should have never been involved. Am I talking about living a, a, a fake life to protect people? No. I'm just saying you ought to have a brain that God has given you that allows you to understand there's some things that your kids don't need to be involved in. You need to protect them emotionally, spiritually, and maybe even physically away from injuries that could come their way. And also other friends and families that get involved, right? So David tells them flat out, man, you guys need to return to Jerusalem to get out of harm's way. He's worried about them, when in all reality, he should be worried about himself. We don't see this, but man, when we really look at the story, what David's doing is actually pretty awesome. And their response, look at verse 21. This is a response like no other, man. 21, whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. Notice how he starts it, though. Notice how he starts his deal. As surely as Yahweh lives, he's calling God by his real name. This is a guy that's not only now changed locations, this guy has changed his religion. His beliefs have changed. You understand this? This is huge. This is the impact David must have made on him. He's not only willing to change where he lived and who he hung out with and what he called home, he's now willing to change Lord or God to Yahweh. He's developed this relationship with him, right? And here's some lessons we get even from these guys. He is loyal to David when it could have cost him something, when it might cost him something. And you can say it this way. True loyalty isn't demonstrated until it's likely to cost you something to be loyal. True loyalty isn't demonstrated until it's likely to cost you something to be loyal. Some of your friends that you look to right now, they hadn't been tested yet. Some of them ain't going to stand the test, I hate to tell you. Some of them have stood the test, and you can shake your head and say, these are the real guys that will stand by me no matter what. And for us, man, should we not have this same response in verse 21 to Jesus Christ himself? Should should it not be that we need to determine wherever Jesus is, we will be also? Whatever comes our way, we will serve him also. We, we We will follow him also. And when we get that kind of attitude, go to number four. Number four, you gotta take time to worship when you're in crisis. Verse 23. I bet David hated verse 23. I mean, think about it. Seriously, what's he saying? Everyone in the countryside is weeping loudly while all the people are marching out of the city. Can you picture the scene? Picture the scene. Now you got everybody in the city weeping. They're upset. They don't like what's going on. And what's going on? You got David and all his men he's gonna take with him and his family members that he's gonna take with him marching back out of the city toward The wilderness. David's probably thinking, my God, how much more time do I have to spend in the wilderness? Right? I mean, look at it. They're marching out of the city. As the king was crossing the valley, all the people were marching past on the road that leads to the wilderness. David is being sent back to his time for training. I tell you exactly what God is doing. Now, now, David is a man after God's own heart. David is awesome. He, we said he sucks, as a that? David, for, for this period of time, for, for a couple years now, has been a really bad guy on the throne. And God sees it. God recognizes it. God said, man, your best training was in the wilderness. See, some of you right now wondering why I got to go back to the wilderness. When God's telling you, you got to go back because your best training was in the wilderness. I got you and made you who you are because of all the wilderness. I was able to mold and shape you as the pot that I could use because I had to heat things up in your life. And it was when things were heated up in your life that I was able to mold you, that I was able to shape you. And when things weren't heated up and things were cold, you was as stubborn and as hard as you could be. And if I would have tried to shape you at those moments, I would have had to break you to make that happen. Now, some of you need to be broke. Thank God he got super glue and put you back together, too. But but look at what he's doing here. He's sending them back. It's time to get back on track. Right? David's been on the run before, guys. He knows how to, how to handle this thing. And it's often when we get to the, where we feel something is the end, that it's really just the beginning of something else. And that's where David's at, man. He, he thinks he's at the end of, he thinks he's at the end of a stage. When you're out, the end of a stage is just the beginning of a new stage. You, you, you anybody ever play, I'm not talking about these new games now, anybody play like old school Atari or Nintendo? You'd win like, this, this super awesome stage, and you'd be like, yes, that's got to be it. And it would come up with another number and another number. And, another, and it was like the stages never ended, right? There, there was never any, any end to it. They just kept on coming. You could say it this way. The floor on this level is the ceiling on the next level, right? Or the ceiling on this level. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The ceiling on this level is the floor of the next level. God is all about getting us to the next level and doing more things with us. And sometimes he's got to send us into the wilderness for that to happen. And here's the lesson that David has in the midst of this dangerous situation. Now you got to read 24 because that's where the lesson is. Zadok was there alone and all the Levites were with him. Who's with David? Got to point this out. Who's the Levites? Priest. He's got God's people on his side. All right. With him and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set the Ark of God down and, uh, Abathor offered sacrifices until the people had finished marching past. Now, I don't know what time period here, but can you imagine how long the time period might have been that these sacrifices were happening? It says he was at the front, because we know the ark led the way, right? It's told by the It says, sat down. They started offering sacrifices until how many people passed by? All of them. Imagine how many people there is. Now, there's David and all his family. Then there's those 600 guys and all their family. This is not like a small parade. It's small in the in the scheme of big, big things, but this ain't no tiny parade. But yet David makes sure to pause for worship until the very last person crosses. He cuts nobody out. He leaves no room. He doesn't even, I can, can you picture if it had been us? I'll tell you, if it had been me, I'd have been down there like talking to the last guy. Hey, you got to walk faster. They coming. We got to roll. David ain't doing that. David's telling the priests and the followers, y'all stay right here. And y'all do exactly what you're doing until the last man marches past. They're not running, they're not sprinting, they're just marching, marching on past, right? This is awesome, man. This is awesome. What's going on is this guy has brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the present day where it's supposed to be, and he's making these sacrifices. David is literally about to run for his life, yet he pauses for a time of worship. How often is it we get so caught up in what's going on that we forget to pause for a time of worship? How often is it that we get in a situation, in a crisis, and we're like, man, what do I even have to worship God for? Like, we forget what all God has done. It's in these moments that David is writing those six psalms I told you about, maybe even more. It's in these moments while he's on the run that that he's remembering all that God has done. And he's also remembering, God, you're taking me back to the wilderness to get me back right. You know, you can almost smile when you understand what God is doing sometimes, even though you don't like it. Huh? P- Pax is finally understand like we we try to feed him a lot in working markets. We want him to get bigger and stronger. And at first he hated it. I don't want to eat no more. I don't want to go run. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. But now he's like, I eat he ate yesterday. Yeah, this is funny. He eats. He gets on the scale. Ninety nine point two. He goes and eats another peanut butter jelly. Come on back. Ninety nine point four. He goes and eats an entire box of little bites. You know, like like ten. you got, you got four muffins in a little bag and you get 10 bags in this box that you bought. Like we bought the box thinking, oh, that'll last us a week. That'd be nice for snack time for the kids. He ate the whole box. Ninety nine point nine. I said, dear God, let it see a hundred so that he will stop eating the stuff out of this house. Sometimes we need to understand that we're getting pushed for our benefit. God is pushing us for our benefit sometimes. We need to be pushed to the wilderness sometimes. And when we do that, we can stop and say, you know what, God? I don't have to get, get all messed up with the frustration and the fear right now. I can stop and just praise you right now. I can be grateful for what you're doing. David understands that that's something we often forget. When a crisis comes, worship needs to remain our number one priority in life. Worship's got to be a priority. Far too often, we let circumstances and difficulties come between us and our ability to worship. Right? crisis keeps us from the body of christ more than anything else i think which is so weird to me because it ought to be what drives us to the body of christ but think about it something come oh i can't make it today oh you don't understand what i'm going through no we might not but i know where you need to be right i'm not gonna tell you understand i'm now realizing i don't understand what everybody's going through but also understand i know who's got the solution to all of it even when we don't understand it right worship's got to be a priority The truth of the matter is this, worship becomes a side item rather than the number one priority in our lives. And we'll use any, we'll use excuses we wouldn't use to get out of work to get out of coming to corporate worship. Won't we? Be honest. You wouldn't let your kid use them to get out of school for today, but he can use them to stop the whole family from coming to church. Right? We will. We'll do it. And here's the truth, and trust me on this. If you cannot take time to worship God when things are going well, you'll never have genuine, true worship when the waters get rough. Easiest illustration. You think about a a rough stage of marriage. You think about a jerk who treats you crappy. And you think about that moment he realizes it and he's the most loving. You know, some of you girls are dumb enough to fall for it. And you're like, yeah, but he's changing. He didn't mean to do all he used to do. He had a whole 30 minutes of loving me. It was great. What about the other 30 months of the year? There's more than 30 months in a year. Bad illustration. What about the other 30 days of the month? What about the other 30 months? What about the other 30 years? Right? Think about them. Think about them, guys. We get fooled sometime into this. And, and what's the reality? The truth is we can look back on the outside of that picture and we can say, you know what, if you really loved her, he would be treating her like that all the time. He'd be making her feel like that all the time. Do you not think God is the same way? Do we not get a lot of our emotions and understandings because we're made in the image of God? So, therefore, don't you think God is sitting back and saying, hey, if you really love me? You wouldn't have to come to this moment to put on your little fake worship face. It would have been genuine the whole time, right? If you can't worship God when things are going well, you'll never be able to truly, genuinely worship him when crisis hits. That's true. Okay? Here. And if you never see God's, uh, presence during the hard times, how are you going to get delivered? All right. Here's what he does. Number five. We got a couple more. We got to approach crisis with the attitude of faith. Anytime crisis hits, we got to approach it with the attitude of faith. Look at what he does. 25 through 29 here. Now I know for us, we look at this section here in 2020 and we're like, what in the world's going on? Like what, what does the ark of the covenant really matter? What is him sending you back? really have anything to do. For these people, not in 2020, but for these people, this ark is the, the symbol of God's presence with them. They even get into the mindset of thinking, whoever's got this ark is going to win the battles. Right? It's the understanding that if you had the ark with you, God's on your side, and therefore uh, you've got it. You've got victory. It's yours. David, David says what? Take this ark back to Jerusalem where it's supposed to be. What's he really saying? He's saying, I've got absolute trust and total faith. And God, not a symbol. I and mean, this is huge, man. This is not superstitious religiosity right here. Remember, we had that superstition back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Y'all remember? They thought they were high and mighty because they had the ark. Remember, they get the ark out there. What happens? They got their butts beat. They got their butts beat so bad. What happened to the ark? It got took home. But it wasn't in their home. It was to the Philistines' home. Right? Because it's superstitious. Religious feelings. David says, I, "I don't need that." Look at look at David's words. David's words are awesome right here. And you can say it this way in your notes. Maybe a question where you to think about: David doesn't need superstitious religion. He's got real faith. Do you? Do you have the real faith like David's got? Here's what he says, verse 25 and 26. Take the ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, Yahweh's eyes, He will bring me back and let me see it and His dwelling place again. But if He says I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Man, this is faith right here. He's flat out saying, God, whatever it is you want to do, I'm okay with. He's not trying to cover up his sin anymore. He's saying, you know what? I made this. I made this mess. And now I'm going to have to reap the consequences of it if that's what you want to do, God. And God, if you've got enough grace and enough mercy and you want to bring me back, I can't wait for it. But if you don't, I completely understand and I'll take my punishment. And I'll hide in the caves in the wilderness for as long as I need to. This is true, genuine attitude of faith. David's been kicked out of his own living room, yet he still understands everything in his life is in the hands of God. Church, I don't know what every single one of us in this room go through, nor do I know what everybody online is going through. But I know no matter what all of it is, we're in the hands of God. If we would just let him have his way, right? Be honest with ourselves today. When a crisis comes in your life, do you approach it with an attitude of faith or do you approach it with an attitude of frustration? You know, I I confess in the beginning, so I confess again. Far too often I let frustration win too many battles. Far too often. Now, here's what frustration is. Frustration is is, is a lack of being faith-filled. Frustration is a byproduct of not looking to God for help and guidance is what it is. You get frustrated because you didn't turn to God and and see what was going on, right? Right? Sometimes you get frustrated because of this. Here's number six. So I don't have to pause for for that moment of of, of worship and have active faith. Verse 30. You got to let the emotions come out. Now, as guys don't like this one sometimes, but it's true. Look at verse 30. David was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, which we will come back to the Mount of Olives in a minute too, weeping as he ascended. His head was covered and he was walking barefoot. Sign of warning. All the people with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they ascended. As well. David leaves Jerusalem running for his life. The emotion of the situation, he just can't hold it any longer, man. He just can't hold it any longer. You imagine when you're that, you ever been that frustrated? Like, you're so frustrated. You can imagine probably what might have even did it for him. We don't get to know. But maybe he's, he's got this idea they're leaving. He had his worship time break. He, he sent the covenant back to, to show that he's got faith in God. And, he, and he's walking. He's still thinking about everything. I can't believe my own son. I can't believe my sin of not dealing with it. I can't believe, you know, he's thinking, he's playing all the games through his head. He's letting the enemy get in, right? And then he stubs his toe because he's barefoot, right? And and finally, that's it. I can't take anymore. And he breaks out crying. Like that was the thing that you're going to get to a point where you need to be broken and emotions need to come out. And I don't care if you want to cry or if you just want to pause and scream. You've got to let it out. You've got to let it out. Think about David. His son wants him dead. His friends have turned against him. The nation is going into a civil war. He's leaving the Ark of Covenant behind. He's headed for an unknown future. He's on the run again. He's probably praying the whole way up the mountain. Please don't let it be 20 years again. Please don't let it be 20 years again. Right? I'll settle for 10. I'll settle for 5. Let's make a plea bargain, God. Right? Where's my lawyer? Right? He leaves Jerusalem. This man on on, on exile, climbing up to the Mount of Olives. and, And finally, he breaks. Finally, he breaks and emotion just comes flowing out. Guys, we don't need to put on our brave face when we're surrounded by like-minded people. We need to just let the let the ugly cry come on out, as we call it, right? Tears have got to flow because if you don't got... Here's what happens. When you don't have an outlet for your emotions, the longer you, you hold it in, two things happen. One, the more difficult it is to ever let go of. And two, the, the mo the most the, the biggest one I'm afraid of sometimes is the difficulty to release it the right way. You keep it in too long and you explode and it's not in a godly way. It's in a worldly one. You got to let those emotions out at the right time. Right. And know what happens when he does this. I love that second line, man. The first line is cool because he's you, you see the guy who beat Goliath weeping. You know, we're not talking about like a little tear rolling. down. It says weeping. You know, I mean, he is bawling his eyes out, crawling up this mountain. But the second part, notice it. Seeing King David release his emotions paves the way for the rest of the people to do the same. His humble transparency frees others to do likewise. What will your humble transparency lead others to do in your life? Huh? What will it do? Verse 7, I love what it leads to. David climbs the Mount of Olives and he takes a moment. He turns to God one more time in verse 31, our last, our last point. When in a crisis, remember to pray. Then someone reported to David. Atheniofal, probably pronounced horribly wrong, is among the conspirators with Absalom. Lord David pleaded, please turn the counsel of this man into foolishness. I don't know if you guys see what's really taking place right here. If you hadn't studied like who this guy is and what this guy has been able to do and, and what he what he can do. Here's what's scary. Here's what's scary. David is more worried about this guy being on Absalom's side than he's really even worried about his own son being against him. That's how wise and good of counsel this guy is. Think about it even further when we, when we get to it. I can't remember if it's this chapter or next, so I'll just go into, into a brief illustration. on it. They get to a part where this guy tells Absalom, we need to we need to charge right now. Like the numbers are on our side. We need to do what we need to do. We will win, no doubt about it. And they would have won, no doubt about it. But he listens to this other side that says, "Eh." Let's kind of wait and they don't. And because of that, we, well, you will see what happens in chapter 16 and 17, right? But, but we got to pause and pray. But David gets word because this wise good advisor has gone. So here's what he prays. Here's what I pray. Now you almost think it's like an evil prayer. It, Cause what's he saying? He's saying, God, please let that wise good counselor you gave me for so many years become an idiot and not be able to give good counsel to my son. That's what he's really praying, right? In reality, I think at this moment, I I really do believe this. I'm going to stay behind the podium. I think at this moment, David's been broke so much. He's understood so much. And and by his response earlier, that whatever God wants to happen is going to happen. I think he's saying, God, if this is the way you're going to start to mess up the plan, I pray that you use this man to do so. Right? Right? And David teaches us a huge lesson right here. God can accomplish what we cannot. We sometimes want to keep doing things that we've got no We've got no effect on. We want to whine about and put our hands on and get involved in situations that we have no effect on whatsoever. David realizes he's got no effect he can do. He's got to step back and just tell God, God, it's all yours. Whatever you're going to do with it, do with it. And I can't imagine the release from this guy at this moment. I mean, you would think there would be like a verse 31 and a half. Because David is crying, he's weeping. This guy rushes to the front of the line and says, You won't believe it, he's got your good counselor. What are we going to do? You would think, like verse 31 and a half, and David wept louder because things got worse for him. But no, he says, You know what? Let's just step back. Let's stop crying. Let's wipe up the tears. Let me blow my snot off. Let me pray to God. God, you do whatever it is you can do, and you accomplish what I can't. Some things are beyond our ability, guys, and we need to give it over to God. Prayer is probably our most valued. Valued resource in reality. I mean, just think about it. worship is seeking God's presence, right? So then prayer is seeking God's provision. We need God's presence and we need God's provision, right? David understands that it, that if he's going to get through this crisis, he's going to need God's provision. And the crazy part about this whole story, and I want to ask you this, and I pray that you're honest with yourself more so because you've got to be honest with God because he knows, right? David is better on the run and in a fight than he's ever been on the throne. Think about the whole story. He's on the throne is when all his mess ups and mistakes happen. Big ones, small ones in between, all of them. But every time this guy is in a fight, a, a real fight, sometimes the spiritual fights he doesn't do to get on, right? But every time he's in a real fight, he's winning. Every time he, he's on the run and having to hide in the wilderness, he's winning. So, so here's where I want you to be honest with yourself. Maybe you are too. Maybe you're better in the wilderness and on the run, and in the heartbreak, than you are on the throne. And might it just be? I'm not saying this is the case, okay? But might it just be that God knows that? That God, God knows your heart and your motives, and He knows that you would be so. So He almost keeps you on the run to better you. He almost keeps pushing you just a little bit. You know, I, I remember I know Daniel's logged on. I remember when Daniel come back from boot camp. And, and I was asking about some of the stuff and he told me one of the hardest things was when he kept wanting to get out of the pool and that DI would kick him back in. It. What's that guy's job? I would have snatched his foot and beat the snot of that guy kick me back in the pool, right? Like I'd have just gotten in all kind of trouble right there. But, but what's that guy's job? That guy is to push your limits so that you can raise your limits. To find out just how far you can really go. Is God not the greatest father, greatest Abba we could ever have? Then is that not his job as well? Let me just kick you back in the pool just a little bit longer because you need to get that arm strength up because there's a, there's a big swim coming a little bit later that you're going to need it for. Right? Think about this, guys. It's easy to look at this and, and think the opposite sometimes, but is it possible that God allows us to go through so much out of his grace and out of his mercy? That doesn't feel that way when we're in it. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh yeah, you should just, swim. no, I understand you should weep and bawl like David's doing. But there's got to come a moment where you're like, God is doing this to keep my focus on him and not allow the enemy to subtract, uh, distract me with with, with false things, right? Every time things are great for David, he gets distracted. The enemy wins. But when he's not, man, and I just wonder sometimes while we're we're rebelling against all the crisis, if God's just not smiling to be like, this crisis is where you need to be. You don't understand it yet, but it's where you need to be. And there's some good times coming here at the end, okay? I know up until chapter 20, it gets really sucky for David. But there's a good end coming, I promise. All right, so keep that in mind. Keep that in mind with this. Look at this. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what trial you're going through. I don't know what support you need. But here's what I know from watching David. God did not abandon David. And God has not abandoned you either. God is right there hearing his prayers. He's not even alone. Think about this whole picture. He's got hundreds of followers. He's even got Philistines following him. Right. Who would ever thought your enemy would choose to follow you on out of the city uh, instead of your own people? Right. His enemies have become his supporters. Man, if you get to a stage where your enemy becomes your supporter, that's like a, that's like a pretty cool moment. You know what I'm saying? Like God had to do something special to get there. Moreover, I just mentioned a minute ago, he's got the support of the priest. So, so we're being assured that God is on the side. And I almost wonder just to, just a side note before I say this last thing. I almost wonder, you know, David had the prophecy from Nathan. And he's told your your lineage will continue. Is David able to have this attitude because he believed God's word so much that maybe he's thinking Absalom is the one that's going to take over the. You know, he doesn't know that Solomon, we know that Solomon is, but David doesn't know that yet. Right. So so maybe he's thinking, man, God, I don't really like the way you're doing it. But if this is the way you want to do it, I, I surrender to your will. How awesome is that to be a man after God's own heart that will surrender to a will you don't like and you don't understand? I'm just saying maybe that's where he's at. I don't know. But what I do know is this. For chapters 13 and 14, I hated them because we never see David turn to God. But in chapter 15, chapter 15 is a turnaround chapter as much as we don't like what's in it. Because in chapter 15, he turns to God. You can see it in his words. This humble faith. Humble and faith should always go together, I think. Like, humble faith is what gets it done, right? David owns his suffering because of his own sin. He doesn't shy away from it. He writes, if you note takers, I didn't write them down, Psalm chapter 3, Psalm 41, Psalm 55, Psalm 61, 62, and 63, and maybe more. He writes at least six Psalms in this period of his life right here. He is in tune with God and back on the right track. And then we get the last little picture of symbolism right here at the end. 2 Samuel 15, we have a king leaving Jerusalem by the way of what? The Mount of Olives. He's weeping as he goes because he's afraid of his own death. Flip forward to Luke chapter 19. Some of you are thinking, I've heard that Mount of Olives words before. I've never read, but I've heard. Here it is, Luke 19. You see a king coming to Jerusalem by way of Mount of Olives, weeping because he's going to die. Weeping because he understands the sin of the city that's putting him there. David fleeing for certain death. Jesus coming in order to embrace certain death. David weeping of his own sin and horrible consequences. Jesus weeping over our sin and our consequences if we don't turn to him for rescuing. And all I can think is in this chapter when he gets that symbolism at this part right here is that when we stumble, we got to remember what Jesus did. And we need to do two things. We need to let the ugliness of our sin humble us. But then we also need to let the beauty and the grace of God's love. Humble us toward him and not toward anything else. Reaching out to him and understanding, God, your plans, your ways are so much better, so much higher and so much mightier than anything I could ever imagine. Where are we at in our walk, guys? Where are we at in in, in our crisis when it hits? Are we following what David did? Are we pausing to worship? Or are we taking time to regroup rather than reacting? Sometimes our reactions will get us in the most trouble, man. Reacting without thinking, oh my gosh, how much trouble we get in from that one. Right? Have we taken time to pray and give it over to God? Have we understood that those sometimes we're closest to will hurt us the most, unfortunately? But have we have we also taken time to understand that God allows rescuing That that, that you don't need superstition. You don't need a a cool t-shirt or a cross necklace or a new tattoo. You just need genuine faith with him. Right? Genuine, real relationship with him. And understanding what he came to do when he went through the Mount of Olives, weeping over our sin. Before he went to the cross to die for our sin. So that you and I could be recovered from our sin. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. God, we're so grateful for... For tough lessons in scripture sometime, God. God, I'm grateful for this moment in David's life where where things just aren't going good for a lot of chapters. And crisis is, is hitting in his living room, Lord God. But it's in crisis, Lord God, that you make us our strongest. God, it's the crisis that you use to pull us the closest back to you. And Lord, I pray this morning, God, right now as we go through a, a, a crisis in the home. A crisis in the church. A crisis in the community, a crisis in the state, and unfortunately, God, crisis in this nation. The Lord God, you allow us to seek your plan of resolution. God, that we will humbly seek your way and that we will follow the words of David and say whatever it is that you want to do, God. We want to give you the right to do so, and we want to be on board with it. Lord, we turn over everything to you for it's in your great name we pray. Amen.